Ask not what your country can do for you. There's a lot of time. I'm going to be in the lead. The time is Peter, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin. Cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning in to Episode 8 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. This is going to be a very different episode. I'm throwing my regular format completely out the window, but I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. This is one of several albums that my father had that consisted of speeches from famous people. And since tomorrow is the original date of President's Day, you know, George Washington's birthday, I thought I would choose selections from the 35th President of the United States. So, Get ready for some real history in Volume 8, JFK, The Presidential Years. In 2017 and 2018, my daughter and I visited our nation's capital. One year to visit friends, and the following year I was a chaperone for her class trip. And Both times we did visit Arlington Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And yes, we were able to watch the changing of the guards both times we were there. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy delivered a Veterans Day speech hinging on the idea that he hoped there would one day be no more veterans at all, based on the hope that nations in the future would only pursue peace. Kennedy, a veteran of World War II himself, would later be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. President Kennedy spoke to more than 5,000 people gathered in the Memorial Amphitheater on this day in 1961. November 11th, 1961. At the tomb of the unknown soldier, Arlington National Cemetery, Arlington, Virginia. There is no way to maintain the frontiers of freedom without cost and commitment and risk. There is no swift and easy path to peace in our generation. No man who witnessed the tragedies of the last war no man who can imagine the unimaginable possibility of the next war can advocate war out of irritability or frustration or impatience. But let no nation confuse our perseverance and patience with fear of war or unwillingness to meet our responsibilities. We cannot save ourselves by abandoning those who are associated with us or rejecting our responsibilities. In the end, the only way to maintain the peace is to be prepared in the final extreme to fight for our country and to mean it. After we visited the tomb in 2018, my daughter's class gathered at JFK's grave. At that moment, only a few miles away, several thousand people were gathered in front of the Capitol to speak out against the horrible gun violence killing our children. I was reading the passages engraved on the marble around JFK's burial site when I came upon this quote and couldn't help think about that protest. It's words you will hear later in this episode from Kennedy himself, but I thought they were important. Quote, Let the word go forth from this time and place 
to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. And I thought that was happening all over again at that moment in 2018. And if you ever get to Arlington Cemetery, make sure you take in the Sunset Parade at the Marine Barracks. Check their website for the schedule. It's only during the summer. You thank me for it. Make sure you take the kids. Uh, A little history before this next quick segment. As senator, JFK was active in protecting labor, but wanting to expose the corruption in the leadership of the unions. In August of 1958, the Senate passed, but the House failed to pass, the Kennedy-Ives bill, which would have helped eliminate the corruption found at the highest levels of the major unions. As president, he was able to advance that cause. November 15, 1962. Equal jobs, opportunities, a firm stand. There are too many areas of our country where there isn't equal opportunity, where people aren't adequately paid, where they work too long, where their rights are not guaranteed. And as long as that's true, there's a need for the American labor movement. So that I ask you today to join in an old cause and a new one. And that is to make sure that in the ranks of labor, labor itself practices what it preaches. This is true of labor. It must be true of all of us. It must be true of the national government. We must make sure that in our employment practices in the national government, in all grades, that we practice what we preach, that we make it possible not only to uh, permit equal opportunity, but also to encourage it, to uh, not to merely treat all those who apply to us equally, but to make sure that we invite and encourage and stimulate equal opportunity. That requires some work. Spinning my dad's vinyl. May 5th, 1963, the American labor movement. I am astonished, as President of the United States, with some understanding of the problems that this country faces in the 60s, to see how difficult it is for us to pass assistance to education so that your children and the children of fellow Americans can go to college in 1970. I'm astonished that it's so difficult for us to provide transit so our workers and our people can go to work. I'm astonished that it's so difficult for us to provide in the 1960s assistance for our youth who are out of work, who are pouring into our labor markets. The fact of the matter is that the problems are not so dangerous as they were in the 1960s, but they're still with us. I don't think that any American can be satisfied to find in McDowell County in West Virginia 25% of the people of that county out of work, not for six weeks or 12 weeks, but for a year, two, three, or four years. So I'm very conscious as president of this country that this is a rich and prosperous and growing country. But I do think that we have an obligation to those who have not shared in that prosperity, those who may find fault with the American labor movement today in the United States, as they find fault with so many things in this country, need only look abroad, in Latin America, in Europe, in all parts of the world, and see labor unions controlled either by the communists or by the government or no labor unions. And when they find either one of those three conditions, they find inevitably poverty or totalitarianism. And therefore, I think it's a fair judgment to make that a free, active, progressive trade union movement stands for a free, active, progressive country. 
And that's the kind of country... And that's the kind of country I'm proud to be president of. Thank you. Kennedy also took corporations to task. After just a year in office, he was concerned about potentially rising inflation. His administration set an informal but well-publicized target of having wage increases and price hikes match productivity increases. Meanwhile, steel workers bargaining over a contract with the nation's steel companies was getting nowhere. The administration intervened. It didn't want a rerun of the four-month steel strike of 1959 under GOP President Eisenhower. The two sides reached an agreement. The pact with 10 of the nation's 11 steel companies, called for an increase in fringe benefits worth 10 cents an hour in 1962, but no wage hikes that year. Kennedy praised the contract as obviously non-inflationary and said both the USW and the steel firms showed industrial statesmanship of the highest order. The agreement also implicitly said the companies would not raise prices as that would be inflationary. But on April 10th, Roger Blow, CEO of U.S. Steel, the largest of the firms with 25% of the market, met Kennedy in the Oval Office and told him the company was immediately raising prices by $6 a ton and that the other steel companies would follow, as six did. The 3.5% hike enraged the president. What he said in public was biting. April 1962. The steel situation is discussed at a presidential press conference. The simultaneous and identical actions of United States Steel and other leading steel corporations increasing steel prices by some $6 a ton constitute a wholly unjustifiable and irresponsible defiance of the public interest. In this serious hour in our nation's history, when we are confronted with grave crises in Berlin and Southeast Asia, when we are devoting our energies to economic recovery and stability, when we are asking reservists to leave their homes and families for months on end, and servicemen to risk their lives, and four were killed in the last two days in Vietnam, and asking union members to hold down their wage requests, at a time when restraint and sacrifice are being asked of every citizen, the American people will find it hard, as I do, to accept a situation in which a tiny handful of steel executives whose pursuit of private power and profit exceeds their sense of public responsibility can show such utter contempt for the interests of 185 million Americans. If this rise in the cost of steel is imitated by the rest of the industry instead of rescinded, it would increase the cost of homes, autos, appliances, and most other items for every American family. It would increase the cost of machinery and tools to every American businessman and farmer. It would seriously handicap our efforts to prevent an inflationary spiral from eating up the pensions of our older citizens and our new gains in purchasing power. But what he said in private was even more caustic. 
In private, Kennedy added, quote, My father always told me that all businessmen were sons of bitches, but I never believed it until now, unquote. That line quickly became public. We now turn our attention from labor to nuclear weapons. In this next statement, President Kennedy explains his policy concerning the testing and development of nuclear weapons and characterizes the recent series of nuclear tests conducted by the Soviet Union as dangerous and irresponsible. November 2nd, 1961. The president discusses nuclear tests. In terms of total military strength, the United States would not trade places with any nation on Earth. We have taken major steps in the past months to maintain our lead, and we do not propose to lose it. Secondly, the United States does not find it necessary to explode 50 megaton nuclear devices to confirm that we have many times more nuclear power than any other nation on Earth, and that these capabilities are so deployed so as to survive any sneak attack and thus enable us to devastate any nation which initiates a nuclear attack on the United States or its allies. It is essential to the defense of the free world that we maintain this relative position. In view of the Soviet action, it will be the policy of the United States to proceed in developing nuclear weapons to maintain this superior capability for the defense of the free world against any aggressor. No nuclear test in the atmosphere will be undertaken as the Soviet Union has done for so-called psychological or political reasons. But should such tests be deemed necessary to maintain our responsibilities for free world security in the light of our evaluation of Soviet tests, they will be undertaken only to the degree that the orderly and essential scientific development of new weapons has reached a point where effective progress is not possible without such tests, and only within limits that restrict the fallout from such tests to an absolute minimum. In the meantime, as a matter of prudence, we shall make necessary preparations for such tests so as to be ready in case it becomes necessary to conduct them. In spite of the evidence, which shows very clearly that the Soviet Union was preparing its own tests while pretending to negotiate their cessation at Geneva, the United States maintains its determination to achieve a world free from the fear of nuclear tests and nuclear war. We will continue to be ready to sign the Nuclear Test Treaty, which provides for adequate inspection and control. The facts necessary for such a treaty are all evident. The argument on both sides have all been made. A draft is on the table, and our negotiators are ready to meet. In October of 1962, leaders of the U.S. and the Soviet Union engaged in a tense 13-day political and military standoff over the installation of nuclear-armed Soviet missiles on Cuba, just 90 miles from U.S. shores. 
In a TV address on October 22nd, President Kennedy notified Americans about the presence of the missiles, explained his decision to enact a naval blockade around Cuba, and made it clear the U.S. was prepared to use military force if necessary to neutralize this perceived threat to national security. October 1962. Another crisis. Cuba and the missiles. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installations. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range ballistic missiles, capable of traveling more than twice as far, and thus capable of striking most of the major cities in the Western Hemisphere. This urgent transformation of Cuba into an important strategic base by the presence of these large, long-range, and clearly offensive weapons of sudden mass destruction constitutes an explicit threat to the peace and security of all the Americas. Soviet government publicly stated on September 11th that, and I quote, the armaments and military equipment sent to Cuba are designed exclusively for defensive purposes, unquote. That there is, and I quote the Soviet government, there is no need for the Soviet government to shift its weapons for a retaliatory blow to any other country, for instance, Cuba, unquote. And that, and I quote the government, the Soviet Union has so powerful rockets to carry these nuclear warheads that there is no need to search for sites for them beyond the boundaries of the Soviet Union, unquote. That statement was false. Only last Thursday, as evidence of this rapid offensive buildup was already in my hand, Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko told me in my office that he was instructed to make it clear once again, as he said his government had already done, that Soviet assistance to Cuba, and I quote, pursued solely the purpose of contributing to the defense capabilities of Cuba, unquote. That, and I quote him, training by Soviet specialists of Cuban nationals in handling defensive armaments was by no means offensive. And that if it were otherwise, Mr. Gamico went on, the Soviet government would never become involved in rendering such assistance, unquote. That statement also was false. The 1930s taught us a clear lesson. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. This nation is opposed to war. We are also true to our word. Our unswerving objective, therefore, must be to prevent the use of these missiles 
against this or any other country and to secure their withdrawal or elimination from the Western Hemisphere. Acting, therefore, in the defense of our own security and of the entire Western Hemisphere and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution as endorsed by the resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. To halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will they found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons be turned back. This quarantine will be extended if needed to other types of cargo and carriers. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace. Let no one doubt that this is a difficult and dangerous effort on which we have set out. No one can foresee precisely what course it will take or what costs or casualties will be incurred. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Spinning my dad's vinyl. Later that same day, President Kennedy again discusses Cuba and a still greater crisis. We cannot base the issue of war and peace on a rumor or report, now as, which is not substantiated, or which uh, some member of Congress refuses to tell us where he heard it. This uh, issue involves a very definitely war and peace, and uh, when you talk about the presence of offensive weapons there, if they are there, I think the Soviet Union is aware, and Cuba is aware, that we would be back where we were in October, but in a far more concentrated way. Now, if you're talking about the, that, and they're talking about uh, the kinds of actions which would come from that, it seems to me we ought to know what we're talking about. Now, it may be that there are, uh, hidden away, some missiles. Nobody can prove that they're, in the finite sense, that they're not there, or they might be brought in. But they're going to have to be erected. And uh, we uh, continue complete surveillance. They have to be moved. They have to be put onto pads. They have to be prepared to fire. And uh, quite obviously, if the Soviet Union did that, it would indicate that they were prepared to take the chance of a, another great encounter between us with all the dangers. Now, they had those missiles on the pads, and they withdrew them. So the United States is not powerless in the area of Cuba. But I do think we should keep our heads and uh, attempt to uh, use the best information we have. We've got, uh, I think, as Secretary McNamara demonstrated, we're taking the greatest pains to try to be accurate. But uh, we have to deal with facts as we know them and not merely rumors and speculation. Now, as I say, these things may all come about, and we may find ourselves again with the Soviet Union toe-to-toe. Uh, -to -toe. But we ought to know what we uh, have in our hands before we bring the United States and ask our allies to come with us to the brink again. And to this day, Cuba has still continued to be a political hot potato. All right, before we move on to JFK's final hours, let's talk about the actual album you are listening to selections from today. It is 
John F. Kennedy, the presidential years, 1960 to 1963, a documentary. It's on the 20th Century Fox Records, TFM 3127. It is a mono album. It was released in 1964. Looking at the discogs of values, the lowest at $1.50, the median at $8, and the highest is at $9.99. Found a couple on eBay, uh, anywhere from $15 to $19. And yes, as usual, Amazon for some reason came in with a copy at $199. Not sure why they valued it that. So uh, my dad's album is actually in fair condition, especially for him, probably because he doesn't have that sticker on it, label that he usually has on all his albums with his address. Um, It didn't get played very much, didn't really know that he had this in his collection, probably noticed it over the years, not something that I ever took out or remember him taking out, Um, so probably didn't get played much. So I'm going to value my dad's record at $3. Now... Now we hear JFK's last public spoken words and the words he was supposed to speak later that night. November 22nd, 1963. President Kennedy's final address, Fort Worth, Texas. We would like to live uh, as we once lived, but history will not permit it. The communist balance of power is still uh, strong. The balance of power is still on the side of freedom. We are still the keystone and the arch of freedom. And I think we'll continue to do as we have done in our past, our duty. I'm confident as I look uh, to the future that our chances for security, our chances for peace are better than they've been in the past. And the reason is because we're stronger. And with that strength is a determination to not only maintain the peace, but also the vital interests of the United States. To that great cause, Texas and the United States are committed. Thank you. Spinning my dad's vinyl. On November 22, 1963, while en route to the Dallas Trade Center, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot and killed by an assassin's bullet. Perhaps no other words more adequately state the credo of our 35th president than those which were to conclude that speech. We in this country, in this generation, are by destiny rather than choice, the watchmen on the walls of world freedom. We ask, therefore, that we may be worthy of our power and responsibility that we may exercise our strength with wisdom and restraint, and that we may achieve in our time and for all time the ancient vision of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That must always be our goal, and the righteousness of our cause must always underlie our strength. For as was written long ago, except the Lord keep the city, The watchman waketh but in vain. A speech he didn't know would be his last, and words from a speech he would never give. What a very interesting episode this was. I told you my dad's collection is 
eclectic. Some of what you heard was from just before I was born, and I was only a little over a year old when JFK was shot. But I've always been fascinated with the story. And I know they are just movies, but JFK was powerful in its storytelling and bringing all the possible solutions to that story. Also watch Hoffa uh, and the latest The Irishman on Netflix to see what Labor had to think about Kennedy. Uh, Those movies fascinated me as well. Also read PT-109 when I was younger, so uh, JFK's life has fascinated me as well. I did not want to end with speeches from his final hours, and so I've still got a couple recordings left. One filled with humor, and one filled with hope. June 1962, President Kennedy speaks at the Yale graduation. It might be said now that I have the best of both worlds, a Harvard education and a Yale degree. I am particularly glad to become a Yale man because as I think about my troubles, I find that a lot of them have come from other Yale men. (laughs) It is true and of high importance that the prosperity of this country depends on the assurance that all major elements within it will live up to their responsibilities. If business were to neglect its obligations to the public, if labor will be blind to all public responsibility, above all, if government were to abandon its obvious and statutory duty of watchful concern for our economic health, if any of these things should happen, then confidence might well be weakened and the danger of stagnation would increase. This is the true issue of confidence. Spinning my dad's vinyl. January 1961, Mr. Kennedy is sworn in as the 35th President of the United States. You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. Let every nation know whether it wishes us 
well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. This much we pledge and more. To those old allies whose cultural and spiritual origins we share, we pledge the loyalty of faithful friends. To those new states whom we welcome to the ranks of the free, we pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away merely to be replaced by a far more iron tyranny. We shall not always expect to find them supporting our view, but we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom. Finally, to those nations who would make themselves our adversary, we offer not a pledge, but a request that both sides begin anew the quest for peace. Remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. I really hope you enjoyed this special episode. I want to thank JFK Library Organization and the History Channel website for much of the information I provided you for today's episode. Thank you for tuning into Volume 8, JFK, The Presidential Years, However You Did. If you want more information about this podcast, head over to SpinningMyDad'sVinyl.com. Join me next week for all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 9, Lumanti and Peppino. Go with the flow, my friends.